you would, turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 2. We're going to be picking up in verse 13. Father God, we, we thank you for the Bible. We thank you for the word that you have delivered to us. And here we have a copy of our own in our language. We have your Holy Spirit who gives us the ability to understand and know your truth savingly. We're sanctified by the washing of the water of your word. And I thank you, Father, that we have this opportunity to gather as the saints on the Lord's day to exalt Christ and to uh, see him in the pages of Scripture. So I pray that you would, by your Holy Spirit, open our eyes and our hearts, that your words would come to life and that they would bring light and life to our hearts and our minds and our lives. Help us, Father, because we need, we need that touch. We need to hear from you. We need to be strengthened and ministered to uh, by you today. And thank you that we can come with confidence, knowing, God, that you will meet with us here. And we praise you for that. Please speak through me. Father, please use me for your glory. Give me the ability to minister to your people mightily and effectively by the Spirit. And we thank you, God, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen and amen. All right, so today we're going to be looking at the authority of Jesus. The authority of Jesus. Kind of get into that in a moment. You know, I have two small daughters. I think most of you in here, you know that by now. Uh, three and four and a half. And so, uh, you know, marriage is a long way away. It's a long way away, and uh, I'm just grateful for the age that they are at and just enjoying this season. But I recognize one day, uh, God willing, they will grow up and get married, and I'm believing by faith that it's going to be two, uh, two pastors, two young pastors that they're going to get married to, preachers, uh, two preacher son-in-laws, right? And so I'm believing it. But you know, when that time comes, one thing is for sure, they better bring their A game. You know what I mean? They better bring everything that they've got and nothing less because they're my daughters, because they are of great worth to me and value. And I would never say to a guy, I would never try to sell, you know, my, my daughter to someone and, 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 and try to, you know, play her up and convince somebody of her worth. Absolutely not. It's the other way around. You're going to have to convince me that you got what it takes to court my daughter and, and to, to care for her uh, in that regard. And I say that because, honestly, I think that we can do the same thing with Jesus. We can make that same mistake. Jesus is of infinite worth, infinite value. He is the treasure. Uh, there is no comparison to to the treasures of Christ and His glory and His excellencies. And I think that um, we can, and maybe even inadvertently, degrade that when we, when we talk about Jesus or try to share Jesus or even just the church at large over the last couple of decades, um, as you kind of see how people go about presenting Christ to other people, almost like a sales pitch, you know. Um, sometimes... Sometimes people see Jesus as my homie, you know, he's just, that's my boy, that's my dog, that's my, my buddy, just total irreverence. To be sure, Jesus is our friend, he's a friend of sinners, he said that no longer do I call you servant, I call you friends, 
But, uh, you know, we want to be very careful that we don't cross a line there and become irreverent with our Lord and Savior. You know, this is a little, you know, forgive me, but, you know, for many, I think you could say Jesus is their boyfriend. Um, some of the worship music that has come out in the last, you know, 10 plus years, it can just be downright creepy or awkward or uncomfortable. And some of the devotionals that are out there present Jesus almost in a very romantic light. It's just a strange thing. You know, for many, Jesus is uh, the ticket to your best life. You really want to have your best life here and now? Well, Jesus is the way. And this is really making Jesus a genie. He's a genie in the bottle, and he exists to, to do your will and to do your bidding and to, to, you know, really up everything in your life. And, of course, that's all bad. You know, for, for others, Jesus is the leader of the Republican Party. And, um, you know, forgive me, I don't mean to step on anyone's toes here, but it just, it's become a real issue in the last, you know, four, five, six years, that, that has become a massive issue in the American church especially, is this conflating of uh, political uh, type things with spiritual to confuse and conflate and kind of make them one and the same. I know somebody who was, uh, they were in Egypt and they were in the catacombs. These are like underground burial sites, like caves and stuff that you could go into and uh, they were telling me they saw a cross, uh, uh, engraved, it was engraven into the wall there, and then there was a body on the cross and then the head of an Egyptian god. And so what was happening there is that these people, they were Christians, but they were mixing you know, Egyptian gods with, with Jesus and creating that depiction um, and, you know, I was at the gym the other day, and I saw a T-shirt somebody was wearing that had a cross and a crown of thorns and a bald eagle and, a, you know, just other American-type, you know, symbols. And I just thought, in fact, it was the face of Donald Trump, you know. And so I was like, okay, this is a, this, I kind of feel like we're, that's the same thing. In a sense, you know, we're, we're conflating and confusing things that really ought not be together like that. And so um, we don't ever want to do that. Jesus is glorious. He's not to be put on the same level with any, anybody or anything else. We're not to bring him down or degrade him or be irreverent towards him in any way. You know, Jesus is often depicted as just this weak, effeminate Jesus who is nothing more than a good suggestion on how to better your lot in life. I've heard people even say things like, just give him a try for 30 days, and if you don't like it, you can have your misery refunded back to you. And it's like, that's cute, and it's clever, but you don't try Jesus, okay? Try Jesus for 30 days. I mean, that, it's, uh, you have to laugh so not to cry at something that is that sad. And so that's, that is the way Jesus is seen and viewed and communicated so often in the day and age that we live. But that's not how the Bible, that's not how the Bible communicates who Jesus is. Quite to the contrary, the Bible says clearly that He is the Son of God, that He is God in the flesh, and that He is one who carries Himself with great authority. 
great authority. And we see that on the pages of Scripture over and over and over again. Matthew chapter 7, verse 29 says, And so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his teaching. And he taught as one having authority and not as the scribes. So when Jesus spoke, there was no question about it. This guy spoke with greater authority than anyone else. It wasn't like all the other rabbis and scribes and so on and so forth. Jesus was on a whole other level. He spoke with the very authority of God. Mark chapter 1, verse 27, Jesus was casting demons out. It says, Then they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority... He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Jesus had that kind of authority. He had authority even over the demonic realm. In Luke chapter 5, we know the story. Uh, Jesus heals a man, but instead of saying you're healed, he says your sins are forgiven you. And then the, the people around didn't like that. They thought that was a blasphemous thing for Jesus to say. And so he says to that, which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven you or to say rise and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins? He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Jesus, the Son of Man, the Son of God, has authority to forgive sin because He is God. He is God in the flesh. John chapter 5, verse 26, it says, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself and has given him authority to execute judgment, also because he is the Son of Man. Jesus has authority to execute judgment. John chapter 10, verse 17, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life and I take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. The Son of Man has authority to lay his life down and to take it back up again. He has authority even over life and death. And then we know the story where Jesus is uh, asleep in the boat, and the storm comes, and the disciples are panicking greatly. They think this is it. It's over. And Jesus, he, they wake him up, and he rebukes the sea, and it, it calms. And then it says, they feared exceedingly. Mark chapter 4, verse 41, they feared exceedingly. They said, who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? He had authority even over the wind and the waves and the sea. Jesus has authority over demonic forces, the ability to forgive sin and execute judgment, authority over religious leaders and teachers, authority over disease and deformity. He, he healed lepers and he gave sight to the blind and, and, and he gave the deaf the ability to hear and the lame to walk and he had power over nature, the wind and the waves and over physical elements. He could turn water to wine and multiply bread and fish. He had authority over even his own life to lay it down and take it up again. Truly, Jesus, the Son of God, has great authority. Great authority. And today we're going to see the authority of the Son of God on full display as he steps into the temple of God and cleans house. That's what we're going to see as Jesus cleanses the temple. You may oftentimes hear this account referred to that way, the cleaning out the temple. And we'll talk more about that as we get into it. But with that, let's look at our text. Picking up in verse 13, I have uh, 
three points. So the first one, what we're going to see is that Jesus disrupts a corrupted worship system. Verses 13 through 17, that's what we're going to see. Jesus disrupts a corrupted worship system. Verse 13, Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. Okay, so at this point, Jesus is now going to travel from Cana down to Jerusalem. Remember last week, he was in Cana of Galilee, there where he turned water into wine at that wedding. And so that's, that's the northernmost part of Israel at this point in Israel's history. And he's going down to the, the southern region. And it always says that they go up when they go to Jerusalem, even if technically he's going down or going south, because Israel, or Jerusalem rather, is, is so high up, so far up above sea level that it's always going upward as they go up. And you'll notice that in the Psalm of Ascents, uh, where they are singing on their way to Jerusalem. They always talk about going up to Jerusalem, and such is the case here. And we're told that Jesus is going for the Passover. Uh, in John, there are three different mentions of the Passover feast, three different feasts that take place. This is the first of three. And so what is the Passover? Many of us by now have probably heard of this and know well what it is. But the Passover was instituted back in Genesis, or excuse me, not Genesis, in Exodus. When uh, there was the 10th plague, when every male child of each house, the oldest male child, was going to be killed. And the death angel would, would pass over the house that had the blood of a lamb on the doorpost. And so the, the, the Jewish families there, they would, they would slaughter a lamb and put the blood on the doorpost of the house. And this was obviously a picture of Christ who would come and who would be the, uh, the Passover lamb who would take away the sins of the world. Well, that was where it began back in Exodus. And then every year from that point forward, for the most part, uh, this would be a feast that would be celebrated by the Jews. And every devout Jewish male over 12 years of age had to make the pilgrimage there. They had to travel to Jerusalem. So the population of Jerusalem would explode during the Passover. You, there's all different accounts of what the population probably was, generally speaking, and then what the population would rise to. And it's, it's hard to know. It's hard to say, and there's so many different estimates that are given, but it's a, it's a very small place, Jerusalem. Um, but it has been said that the population could swell up to anywhere from 200,000 to a million people. That's a lot, and that's also a huge jump from low to high, so it's, it's hard to even say uh, exactly how many it is, but one, one uh, resource I came across, they quoted Josephus, who was a, a historian, uh, they quoted him as saying that in 65 AD, there were no less than 3 million people in Jerusalem at the Passover, and so that's, that's kind of a, uh, that's, it's hard to know, that's a lot of people. Either way, the point is, Jerusalem would explode with pilgrims during the time of the Passover, and that's important for us to know 
uh, for the, the text that we are in today. It was just chaotic there. It was bursting at the seams. People from all over the known world were coming in to Jerusalem at this time to worship God at the feast of the Passover, and such was the case with Jesus. So Jesus is here. He came up from Galilee with his disciples to worship at the Passover, and he steps into the temple. We're told that he steps into the temple at this point. So I wanted to just take a few minutes to talk about the temple itself. I'm sure that we, we, we make mention of it quite a bit, read about it, but what is really the history of the temple of God? And so um, God originally met with his people in a tent. It was called the tabernacle. And I have several images up here we're going to put up, try to move through these kind of quickly. Um, hopefully I, I, uh, I got all of these images correctly. So this is the first map. So right there is where Jesus was last week uh, in, our, in our store, Cana. And now he's all the way down here in Jerusalem. So that's quite a distance to travel, most likely by foot. And so they made the pilgrimage from, uh, this is where Jesus did the majority of his ministry up in this area, but he's down here for the feast. So if we can go to the next slide. So this is what um, the tabernacle would have actually looked like, the, the meeting place of God in the Old Testament. I'm sure you've probably heard of the tabernacle. It was a tent. It was a tent with this wall that was able to, to be broken down and, and packed up, and then they would carry it on to the next place. Now, this is actually a picture right here that was taken by Moses during the time. I'm just kidding. Okay, you knew that. Good, good. Just, just uh, testing you. All right, if we can move on to the next slide. So this is kind of like, I like this picture because it just kind of gives you an idea of what it was like when the Israelites were encamped all around the tabernacle in the wilderness there. And you would have the, the priest here ministering and offering sacrifices. And inside of here would be the, the holiest place where they would go in and the high priest would uh, meet with the Lord. And uh, it's very ornate. You know, when you read about this in Exodus, it's, it's hard to picture in your mind what it actually looks like. But when you see it, it's really kind of neat and it really kind of brings it to life. So this was the tabernacle, this was the, the meeting place uh, during the time of Moses and, and on. Uh, if we can go to the next slide. So this would be the next temple. Sorry, this is just actually a model. So what happened, what happened was uh, David, we know the story, David became the king. And David uh, prospered and he said, man, it's not right for me. Here I am in this house, I want to build God a house and God did not, uh, didn't accept that, but he said, your son will. So Solomon built the, the temple, the house of God, and uh, it was glorious, and it was massive. And so here would be the actual temple building. This is the entire complex, if you will. And so um, this is, it was glorious, it was ornate. Can we go to the next slide? Um, this is kind of uh, what it looked like just inside that little space right there as you kind of zoom in. Um, one more slide. Hopefully I have it in here. I do. So this will be the inside of it. Uh, and so it's just all of this gold. I mean, it was incredible. And you consider everything that Solomon poured into building this place. And so this would be like the Holy of Holies here. There's the Ark of the Covenant. And that was a very sacred uh, sacred 
religious relic. I don't know what you would, would call that. But we see the Ark of the Covenant. And this is where God would, His presence would manifest on the Day of Atonement when the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies to sacrifice on behalf of the people. And so, uh, well, this temple was destroyed in 586 B.C., the uh, Babylonians came in and they tore down the temple, they took all the gold, they took all the people back to Babylon, and for 70 years they were there in captivity, and then the Jews were allowed to come back and they were allowed to rebuild the temple. And so we have that in Ezra, but what's interesting about that is that when they did rebuild it, it it just didn't compare whatsoever to the to the glory of Solomon's temple, so there were a lot of people there in Ezra who uh, were born during the, the Babylonian captivity. They didn't know about the previous temple. And then there were people there who had seen the previous temple. So we're told in Ezra that as they were celebrating the dedication of the, what we'll call the second temple, there was actually a mixture of celebrating and crying because some people were so bummed out that it just paled in comparison to the glory of the old temple and then the younger folks who were uh, stoked, they were excited about the temple being rebuilt. This is a really interesting thing. So the second temple just did not compare to the glory of Solomon's temple at all. So if we can go to the next slide. This is Herod's temple. So this is what the temple looked like during the time of Jesus. So Herod the Great, we know a little bit about him. He was a psycho, to be sure. He was a crazy guy, and he tried to have, remember Jesus when he was a baby, he tried to have all the children killed so that he could, one way or another, take Jesus out. Um, we know that story. Well, he also uh, loved to build. He, he really had um, a passion about uh, architecture and building great buildings, and he also would try to uh, win favor with the Jewish people, so he took the project up of um, reconstructing and expanding the temple. So we don't know what that second temple looked like that was built in Ezra's time, but we know that by the time you get to the time of Jesus, this is what it looked like because of Herod the Great. And so you have these different courts here. Um, here would be the court of the, the women. The women couldn't go past this point. The Gentiles I think that this right here tells us that this wall right here was actually a dividing wall that kept the non-Jews past this point. They couldn't even come into here. So I'm not 100% sure. Um, I didn't get too deep into that. But nonetheless, this is what the temple complex would have looked like by the time Jesus steps on the scene. And I'm guessing that when Jesus came in and, and uh, he saw the money changers and everything going on, it was probably in here. But it's possible that it was out here as well. So I'm not 100% sure about that. But that just gives us a little bit of an idea as to what it looked like uh, when Jesus stepped into the temple. And that, that's really the history of the temple and what it looked like by the time that Jesus stepped on the scene and what it looked like. And then consider who knows how many people were here at this point, uh, given the various estimations uh, for the, the Passover. But it would have been chaotic, just to say the least, with all the people there. All right, thank you. That does it for the... Uh, the does that helpful? Does that make sense? Okay, good. So it's good to kind of have some picture in our minds of what this could have, would have looked like. 
And so there you have it. So it's Passover, Jerusalem, Herod's temple. It's packed. It's exploding. Jesus walks into the temple, and what does he find? He finds people selling oxen and sheep and, and money changers, the whole nine. So what, what is that about? What, what's going on here exactly? Well, we know that people would come and they had to sacrifice. They had to sacrifice to, uh, to God at this temple, and people would be coming from far and wide. And so in a way, it was very inconvenient for people to try to travel that far with livestock. And so I think a lot of people had it in their mind that they would just buy something to sacrifice when they got to the temple in Jerusalem. And that, that makes sense. So it was a matter of convenience, to be sure. But there was also kind of a hustle going on here because you had people that the priests would have to inspect the sacrifice and make sure that it was up to standard. It had to be spotless. It had to be without blemish, right? And so they would look it over and say, you know, this is good but it's not great. I have something better. You need our sacrifice. You need our you know, lamb or dove or whatever it is. And so they would end up having to buy the better, if you will, supposedly. You know, and I think just to get a, a picture of what this would be like for us, uh, I had a, a buddy who took a group of people to uh, a Giants game recently, and they got the, the box seats up there. You know, they had the, the nice room with uh, it was catered and all of that. And so they said um, they decided to get water instead of soda because they just knew how expensive that would be. And so um, I think it was for 20 bottles of water, it was $200. $200. And so, and we know what that's like. You go places where you can't bring anything in, and all you can have is what they serve, and then they're going to charge you like that. And so, in a sense, that's kind of what was going on here in the temple. And so, you got these people that are hustling. They've got this scam set up here, and you have to buy our, our animals to sacrifice. And, of course, it's going to come at a greater cost. But then it didn't stop there. It didn't stop there. We all, they would only accept a certain type of currency. You had to have the temple shekel or half shekel. And so, sorry, we can't accept your money here, but don't worry. We got you covered. Some people over here, they will exchange your money for you. And so they would have to do that. But then guess what? You know, that comes at a surcharge. And so we just have this total system, this corrupt system going on here at the temple and, you know, some, some commentators have tried to say that there's, we don't know that, and it's not really, you can't really say that was what was going on, that maybe it was just that they were taking up a lot of space in the temple complex there that should have been for worshipers. But Jesus actually does this twice. He cleanses the temple here in John, and then he does it again right before he's crucified in the, uh, at the end of his earthly ministry, we see that in the other Gospels. And when Jesus does that, he calls it a den of thieves. And so obviously what he's getting at here is you guys are corrupt, you're hustling God's people, you're a bunch of thieves. So it's pretty, pretty obvious that that is what is going on here. It's some sort of a scam that, that they have going on. They're profiting off of God's people during a very special day of the year when God's people would gather together from all over the place to worship God. They were getting in the way of the worship of God. They were making God's house a house of merchandise. It was a, a den of thieves. And Jesus stepped into the temple and saw this, and he, he flipped out. 
You know, we see the righteous anger of God in the Son and His Son Jesus Christ. And so, how does He respond? What does Jesus do? Verse fifteen says that when He made a whip of cords, He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and He poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold the doves, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house has eaten me up. So we're told here that Jesus made a whip of cords. Now, what I would note about this is that this is calculated. It's premeditated. It's like he sees this going on, and then he goes and fashions a weapon to go and do something about it. It wasn't like he just started swinging haymakers on people in a fit of rage. It took a moment to actually do this. And so I think even in that, we see God's righteous anger. There's a couple different words in the Bible, the New Testament, for anger. There's thumos, from which we get the word for thermometer. Um, And it's a sudden, passionate anger, anger boiling up and then subsiding again. And uh, You know, I mean, it's just... It's the kind of anger that we experience. It's volatile. We explode in a moment, and then, then we, the anger goes down, and then we feel bad, and we feel like depressed that we fleshed out like that. And that's, that's the kind of the human anger. But God's, it's a, it's a, different, it's a different word, orge, and it's deliberate. It's deliberate, hostile vengeance. It's calculated. It's measured. It is right, it is fair, it is just, and I believe that is the way in which Jesus reacted. It was a righteous indignation, a righteous calculated anger uh, for what was happening in God's house. And we're told that Jesus drove people and animals out with a whip. Now, I'm sorry, but to me it sounds like Jesus is whipping people, and he probably was. And I don't have a problem with that, I'll get to that in just a moment. But, uh, I, mean, he had, I mean, you consider what was going on there and how many people were there and how loud this was and how chaotic it was. Jesus had to get kind of radical to actually do something about it. You know? I don't think that he, was, you know, he has this whip and he's like, please, guys, would you get out of here? Please, get out, get out. No, I mean, he was, he was going off. You know, he was going off and whipping people and knocking tables over. He kicked the money changers' tables over with the money on it, and that's like next level because now you're messing with people's emotions, messing with people's money, and of course, they're not going to take that well at all. And he's essentially saying, get this stuff out of here. Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. A house of merchandise. God's house is not to be a place where the flock is fleeced, right? God's people are to be cared for. God's flock are to be fed. They are not to be fleeced, not in the name of worship to God. Amen? And so Jesus wasn't going to take that. Now, that's, this has always been a, a problem within the church, and it is a problem to date in many churches and you have it all across the board. You've got churches that it's all they ever talk about is money, and it's very manipulative, and they coerce people to give, and we'll talk about that. And then you've got churches that don't ever talk about it whatsoever, and you know there is a balance there because the Bible does say that we ought to give and that we ought to give 
generously. And, uh, you know, honestly, it's something that we rarely talk about here. We have a box in the back for people to give if they want to partner with us in the work of the Lord. But I would say that we really err on the, the other end because I do believe it is my conviction that we're supposed to give, to give to God and to the work of the Lord and to give to the local church. Um, and that's something that, that we do. And the reality is that local churches do depend on the generosity of their people to pay the bills and to keep things going. But this is something altogether different. You know, this, this is really trying to make a lot of money, to make a lot of profit, and to really advance a person's, uh, you know, usually it's the person at the top of the, of the pyramid, if you will, um, at the expense of struggling, hurting poor people. And you know, uh, Pastor Dan mentioned the Reformation. Uh, well, back in the, in the 1500s, the, the Roman Catholic Church, they, uh, they had a lot of extravagant building projects that the money had to come from somewhere. And so this, uh, this idea that the Pope had uh, access to a treasury of grace in heaven, he had the key to it. And you could get some of that grace at a price. And so they were called indulgences. If you wanted to purchase your loved ones out of purgatory, or maybe even for yourself, you could pay, you could pay to the church, and then the Pope would be able to dispense to you this grace of God. And the saying was, for every coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. And so you see that going on. And so Martin Luther, he was outraged by this, and he wrote what is called the 95 Theses, and it's 95 arguments against the practice of indulgences. That is actually the spark that ignited the Protestant Reformation, was over this practice of indulgences in the church. Well, fast forward into our time. It wasn't long ago there was a famous... um, a famous prosperity preacher. You may have saw something in the national headlines about a $70 million jet that he was trying to encourage his congregation to give so that he could have this jet. And um, I was listening to a little clip of a sermon that he was teaching on um, giving. And he was uh, talking about this new building they were building. It was massive. And, you know, God's blessing is really, you know, on people who tithe. And so he was saying that, you know, he kind of had this vision in his mind of uh, he would love it if, you know, when you have to, like, go into a subway, those, those metal things that spin that you walk through, and, and when you come through it, his, the tithers in the church, there would be this music that would play, and it would say, welcome, 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 you know, God bless you. But then the, the non-tithers, when they came through, sirens would go off, non-tithers, non-tithers, and the... The elders would, would gather them up and take them outside and shoot them all down with Uzis and bury them in the ground, and now they can come back in and have a church service with the anointing, with God's blessing, because the non-tithers had been taken out. And, and then he says this, if you take time to tithe the tithe correctly, it is impossible to go to hell. Because you're doing all of that, tithing will keep you in heaven. It will keep you in the presence of God. So you're telling people that I wish that I could shoot you down with a machine gun and bury you outside for not tithing. And if you do tithe, you can guarantee that you won't go to hell. 
In fact, you will certainly go to heaven because tithing will keep you in the presence of God. Now, if that is not manipulation, coercion, fleecing the flock, I don't know what it is. And that kind of stuff happens. And Jesus, man, he is outraged by that, outraged by that. And, um, and so, you know, I think that's what kind of Jesus sees in a sense. And he comes into the temple and he starts just tearing things down and kicking stuff over and chasing people out. And uh, the disciples see this, we're told, and it says that they remembered. They remembered something that had been written, and it quotes for us Psalm 69.9, Zeal for your house has eaten me up. Well, that, um, that's Psalm 69.9. It actually says this, Because zeal for your house has eaten me up. It just burns me up. And the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. And so what he's essentially saying here is that when God is blasphemed, when God is dishonored, I feel the pain. I feel that. That's amazing to me. Jesus felt the dishonor that his father was experiencing because of what was happening in his father's house. And with that, he went off and he executed righteous indignation, judgment against these people. Like I said, some people take issue with this. They try to soften it. And, you know, Jesus, you know, that's sinful. You, you know, he wouldn't do that. But look, Jesus is qualified to execute the wrath of God. We know that. He already said that. I have the authority to do that. The Bible says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord, right? So it's not our place. But he is the Lord, and it is his place. He can do that. And so I have no problem with Jesus going Jackie Chan on any of these guys out here. I mean, throat chopping and eye gouging and the whole nine, all right? He can do that. He is the Son of God. And so I say amen. Get him, you know, get him. And so, uh, so there it is. You know, Jesus dismantles, disrupts this corrupt worship system. And this brings us to point two. I've got to pick it up now. And so, second point, Jesus defies the corrupt religious leaders. Jesus defies the corrupt re religious leaders. Verse 18, it says, So the Jews answered and said to him, What sign do you show us since you do these things? Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And so the Jews here, it's talking about the religious leaders throughout the Gospel of John. Whenever it says that, that the Jews, they came, they challenged or questioned Jesus. This is typically a designation for antagonistic religious leaders here. So it's not just the common people. It's the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees. And so they say, hey, since you're doing these things, what sign do you show us? Basically, what gives you the right, what gives you the authority to do this. So this is really kind of the crux of it right here. Jesus came in, Jesus disrupted what was going on there, and they say, what gives you the authority? What gives you the right? Who do you think you are? Give us a sign, a miraculous heavenly endorsement that validates you or, or vindicates you. And I love Jesus' response to them. Uh, he really answers them with this kind of cryptic, in this cryptic fashion. He says, destroy the temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now, we know what he's talking about. He's talking about his own death, burial, and resurrection, that he would die and that he would rise again on the third day. But this was a common thing that Jesus did. 
people would ask him questions, and he would respond with a question. He just was not answerable to people. He is the man. He was the God-man. And he didn't have to do anything, say anything. He had authority. They didn't have authority. He had authority. And so Jesus would turn it on them. And so, you know, he, he would often do this. Like Matthew chapter 12, verse 38, some of the scribes and Pharisees answered, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. It's like, what in the world is that? And so they're like, show us a sign. Prove to us you are who you say you are. He said, I'm not going to give you a sign. But as Jonah was in the belly of the fish, so will the Son of Man be uh, in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. And so his, his resurrection, that, that's the sign. Just a, a quick note here. Jesus believed the story of Jonah. Did you know that? Jesus believed the story of Jonah. If Jesus thought that the story of Jonah was fictional or a myth, he's essentially saying his own resurrection is a myth because he's comparing his own resurrection to the account of Jonah who was in the belly of the fish. So the, the, the Old Testament writers, the New Testament writers, Jesus himself, they authorized the validity and the literal nature of the Old Testament scriptures. And we see Jesus doing that here. In fact, we now know there was a fisherman who was swallowed by a whale and was in there for a few days, and they got the guy out, and he was alive. And so that's, that's, that is uh, something that has happened in our, in our lifetime. So, uh, you know, it's just a side note there, but interesting. So as I said, Jesus is not willing to really answer them here. He's not answerable to them. Uh, but he does answer the question in a way that they don't understand. He simply says, you're going to take my life, but I'll take it up again. You will kill me, but I will rise again. And so Jesus' resurrection would be the ultimate sign of his authority. That is what really gives Jesus authority more than anything else. The fact that he will lay down his life and take it back up again. That is the, the glory of the Son of God. You want to know who I am? I'm the one who can lay down my life and take it up again. That is my authority. That is why I can do the things that I do. Now, obviously, the Jews didn't understand this. They didn't know what Jesus was even getting at here. And so, verse 20, the Jews said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So they, they're totally confused. They say, 46 years it has taken us to build this temple. So they obviously don't get what he's talking about. Um, I mentioned the second temple that was built during Ezra's time. That was completed in 516 B.C. So about you know approximately 500 years before Christ. About 20 years before Christ, approximately, Herod began the reconstruction and expansion project of the temple. So one commentator, he says that the workers completed the main part of the project in about 10 years, but other parts were still being constructed even at the time Jesus cleansed the temple. Interestingly, the finishing touches on the whole enterprise were still being made at its destruction by the Romans along with Jerusalem in A.D. 70. So the temple was never completely finished, even when it was destroyed in 70 A.D., 
So it was still basically under construction when Jesus said this. And they're like, this thing, they've been working on this thing for 46 years. And you're telling me that you're going to destroy it and build it back in three days. But that's not what he said, first off. And so um, you'll, you may even recall that this was the charge that they tried to bring against Jesus uh, at his false trial. Remember that? They didn't have anything they could bring against him, so they had these false accusations. People came in and said, he said he was going to destroy the temple. He's going to destroy the temple. And so they totally did not get what was going on here, obviously, and, and that's understandable. But there was something else going on here worth noting, and it was what was going on in the minds of his disciples. They're, sitting, they're standing here, they're watching this, they're listening to this, and uh, something was going to become clear to them much later. Verse 22, um, it says, Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this to them, and they believed the Scripture and the word which Jesus said. So, when, uh, when Jesus rose from the dead and his disciples remembered all of this, and they were able to look back to this point and say, this is what Jesus was talking about, and this is exactly what happened. And so they believed what the Word of God said, but they believed what Jesus said. And their confidence and trustworthiness of Jesus was, was built by this. And, and I love that. Jesus said it. At the time, they didn't even know what was going on, but later, by the Holy Spirit, they remember what happened, and, it, and they connected the dots, and that just emboldened their, their trust and their confidence in Jesus. And so even while Jesus is doing this, even while he's going toe-to-toe -to -toe with the religious leaders, if you will, there's something else happening here at the same time with his own disciples. And, and I love that. It's just this multifaceted thing that's happening here uh, with Jesus. Well, this brings us to our third and final point. Third and final point. Jesus discerns the heart of insincere believers. Jesus discerns the hearts of insincere believers. Verse 23 now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, and when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. So now we're a little further into the Passover. It's, it's happening. Jesus is there. He's evidently doing many signs and wonders here at the feast. And uh, many people saw these things and were told that they believed. But John, however, indicates that perhaps they didn't believe. Perhaps this was a, a superficial belief here that was happening in Jesus, with Jesus and the, the people around him. And this is something that we would see, you know, in other places in the Gospel of John. Remember where Jesus feeds the 5,000 and the next day the people follow him to the next place. And they come up to Jesus, and he says, look, you're following me because you ate the food, and you were filled, and you want more of that. That's what you want. He says, don't labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set a seal on him. But then this is their response. They say to him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. And then they say, 
well, what sign do you perform? Here it is again. What sign do you perform that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? Well, he just fed the 5,000 miraculously the day before. And they're chasing him around because they want more of that. And then he's like, you need to believe on the Son of Man. They're like, okay, we will. What sign will you do another trick for us, Jesus? And so that's really the kind of, that's the dynamic here. That's what's going on. There's this superficial faith. It's, it's, it looks genuine on the outside, but Jesus sees past it. Jesus sees right through it. And so Jesus distances himself from those kinds of people. Um, we're told that Jesus did not commit himself to them. Uh, the New American Standard uses the word entrust. Jesus did not entrust himself to the people. So the people were told in John 2 saw the signs and believed, but Jesus did not entrust himself to them. I'm, I'm emphasizing those two words. They believed, but Jesus did not commit or entrust himself to them. Com- a commentary by, from MacArthur says this, The people thought that he might be a prophet or even a conquering Messiah that they were expecting, but such faith was shallow, superficial, and disingenuous. It was not true saving faith, as John's play on words indicates. So there's a play on words happening here, and it's like this. Believed in verse 23 and entrusting in verse 24 both come from the same Greek verb. Though they believed in Jesus, Jesus did not believe in them. He had no faith in their faith. Did you catch that? He had no faith in their faith. That's a scary thing. Jesus can see into our hearts, and He knows what's really going on there. That can be a frightening thing. Jesus did not have faith in their faith. It was superficial. It was disingenuous. It was, it was fake. And Jesus distanced himself from people like that. Morgan, another commentator, says, If belief is nothing more than admiration for the spectacular, it will create in multitudes applause, but the Son of God cannot commit himself to that kind of faith. That's heavy. John says that the reason Jesus didn't entrust himself to people is because he knew all men. F.F. Bruce says, Other leaders and teachers may be misled at times into giving their followers more credit for loyalty and understanding than they actually possess. Not so with Jesus, who could read the inmost thoughts of men and women like an open book. John said that Jesus had no need that anyone should testify of man. Jesus knew. He didn't entrust himself to these folks. He distanced himself from these folks. He knew what was in the hearts of men, and it didn't matter what anybody said about men. He knew. He knew. Warren Wiersbe says this, He knew what was in man is a statement that is proved several times in John's gospel. Jesus knew the character of Simon. He knew what Nathanael was like, and he told the Samaritan woman all the things that she had ever done. He knew that the Jewish leaders did not have God's love in their hearts, and that one of his disciples was not truly a believer. He saw the repentance in the heart of the adulterous woman and the murder in the hearts of his enemies. Several times in the upper room message, Jesus revealed to his disciples their own inner feelings and questions. The Lord is the discerner of the heart. 
Jesus knows what's going on in there. And that's why we've got to be very honest with him. Amen? That's why we need to get very real with Jesus. And I'm just going to transition right into the Lord's table, table here with this. We've got to do business with God today, folks. Jesus has all authority. He has all authority. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to him. And he has the ability to see right into the hearts of men and women and to do business with us. And that's what the Lord's table in many ways is about. Jesus gave for us this symbol. Through this we remember what Christ Jesus did for us. Such was the love of God that he gave his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, died for us on the cross. His body was broken and his blood was poured out on Calvary's tree for us. And Jesus said, as long as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. Paul said, as long as we partake of the Lord's table, we are proclaiming his death until he comes. And so we are remembering the love of God. We are remembering the mercy of God. We're remembering the infinite price that was paid there as Jesus' body was broken and his blood was poured out for sinful men and women like us. That is the love of God. Amen. And so we have to respond to that. You have to believe. You have to trust Jesus. You have to acknowledge the fact that we have sinned against God and that if not for God's mercy, we are in big trouble, eternal trouble. But God so loved the world that he gave his son that if we believe in him, we'll have everlasting life. There is no judgment then. There is no condemnation we are in Christ, found in Him, and God is our loving Heavenly Father. And you've got to believe that. You have to trust Christ for salvation. And that, that, that's what it's all about. That's why we are here today, because we are brothers and sisters in Christ. We have believed in Jesus as our Lord and Savior, as the payment for our sin. And we know that we are alive in Him and that we are saved in Him. And then we come to the table we come to the table to remember afresh the price that was paid for us. And it's a time of worship. It's a time of thanksgiving. It's a time of confession. And uh, it's a time of checking our hearts. And I want us to invite the Lord to do that. He's the discerner of hearts. Psalm 139 says, Search me, know me, show me if there's anything in me, Lord, that needs to go. So do you know Jesus? Do you believe in Jesus Christ? Have you trusted Him as your Savior? And if so, are you walking with Him today? Is there anything in your life that you need to confess and repent and turn from? If you don't know the Lord, I want to encourage you not to partake of the Lord's table with us today. This is for the church. This is for those who have trusted Christ. But you can know Him right now. I believe that you're here because God is drawing you. He's calling you. He wanted you to hear the gospel message today. And I am pleading with you, respond, believe, trust Christ. Have life, have it abundantly through Jesus. And then partake of the Lord's table with us. Partake with us. That would be our greatest delight in this room. Amen. Jesus, we thank you so much. And we praise you here today. We offer you the sacrifice of praise, which is the fruit of our lips, as we thank you, as we remember the great price that was paid there on Calvary's cross.
We bring you glory. We bring you honor. We thank you and we confess again today that we need that. Lord, we need that forgiveness. We need that love. We need that mercy and grace. And we thank you that our sins were paid for there at the cross once and for all. And we remember you, Lord Jesus, and we thank you and we bless your holy name and we partake together in your name. Amen. God, please go before us as we leave here today. I thank you for this family of believers. And I thank you for the work that you're doing in each and every one of their lives. And I just pray your blessing over them, God. Lead them in the right way. Strengthen them according to your grace. Not by power nor by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord. I pray that we would be filled with the spirit, led by the spirit, that you would use us for your glory. And that you would help us, Father, in our weakness. Help us in our fear and in our failures. Provide for our every need. Please strengthen those here who are hurting or sick or, or whatever uh, kind of um, ailment they may be struggling through, God. I just commend uh, these, your people, to your grace, Father. And we thank you. That is our hope. In Jesus' name, amen.